Welcome to Sustainable Solutions with Planet Aid. And I am Monica Johnson. I'll be your guide on this journey as we take challenging situations and try to simplify them. Now, in this podcast, we explore some of the critical challenges of our world, and we learn from incredible individuals and organizations at the forefront of developing and implementing sustainable solutions to these very issues. Change is not only possible, but essential, and it all begins with understanding. So today, we want to welcome our guest, who is the CEO of an organization called Seed to Shirt. You might be able to see it on her t-shirt right there. So we want to say welcome to Tamika Peoples. How are you, Tamika? Well, Monica, thank you so much for having me on Planet Aid today. It's such an amazing conversation I look forward to having with you. Oh, yeah. We're so excited. And I learned about your organization and I was immediately drawn to it just because of the purpose of it. So if you can, just for context and background, just give us a little bit of information about how you started Seed to Shirt, how it was founded. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. You know, Seed to Shirt was founded out of this idea of wanting to create a product that was Black made, a product or t-shirt, t-shirt product that was Black made all the way from the source of the cup, as well as the ability to really do good with the production of this product. So we wanted to have some uh, approach on how we produce ethically, an approach of how we produce um, in an eco-friendly manner. And so as I began to want to have this t-shirt for a an event that I was doing, I didn't want to just do a, a typical kind of fast fashion, hand out some gear and here's your swag bag. I really wanted this shirt to mean something and to have a, a real um, a circular impact on the environment in this community. And so <laughs> the desire to have this shirt for that event was really the impetus of how Seed to Shirt was created. Um, so that's the background of Seed to Shirt. And I always tell people we're a vertically integrated apparel production company. We make ethical produced t-shirts. They're a blank. Folks can use them in their line. We offer services like our, our cotton merchandising services, and we do programs that really have an impact on people and planet through our farmer rich program. So were you also just looking to tackle a particular challenge as well? And I know that just doing the environmental thing was one thing, but there's a whole, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole mission that's behind your company. So tell me a little bit about some of those challenges you might've been looking to solve or tackle or whatever it may be. (laughs) You know, um, beautiful question again. um, One of the things that, really stood out to me as a Black woman was the fact that uh, cotton had this, I, I never had touched raw cotton and there was an internal DNA visceral reaction that I had through, to cotton in general. Just even sometimes saying, hey, I want to source cotton was this, it had this tie to chattel enslavement and the, the disenfranchisement of Black communities and to really what but that particular commodity, amongst others, the historical impact it had on our people and our community globally, from Africa to Brazil to the North Americas or the United States, as we call them. So I really was trying to tackle this reimagining Black people's connection to the elements of production as well as the reconnection to cotton in a way that didn't cause harm, right? Didn't have this emotional harm or physical harm. And to be quite frank, you know, cotton is something that we interface with 
every day. Every day. Have money. If you eat beef, if you uh, have gone and had an X-ray done, there are elements of cotton or cotton byproducts and every everything that I just mentioned there. So I I knew that you know I wanted to I wanted for us to have a healing relationship with cotton and an empowering relationship with cotton community. I love that. We're going to come back to that a little bit later in our conversation, but. Just digging in a little bit more, Seed to Shirt's slogan and tagline says, a Black-made apparel company, and it's providing ethical, sustainable, and social impact. So can you unpack that a little? Um, It's a very dense statement, but I would say, you know, especially that social impact, I love that aspect of it as well, because, you know, clothing company? Why should you make a social impact? How can you make a social impact? Right. Yeah. So one, you know, we were in the production of our products. We knew that we were going to be connecting a lot of portions of the value chain. One, we were ethically sourcing cotton and we wanted that cotton to be organic, right? But in that in that approach, we also wanted to make sure that we brought value back to the farmer or back to the grower. So this kind of led to a development internally of our farmer enrichment program, where we really focus on how we can bring resources back to those growers in a way that wasn't extractive, right? Yes, we wanted the cotton for a product, but you know these growers were um, growers whom we were sourcing from, certainly in Western Africa, were having soil health challenges, and they were experiencing challenges with tools and resources, very similar to the same challenges are black cotton farmers here were experiencing in the U.S. So um, the social portion of it was, you know, we need to be thinking holistically about the farmer as well and the portions of, of the people who touch the entire value chain. So for where we even produced our product, we, we focused on a carbon neutral production facility, a fair trade, and we knew that they had a community or village support ecosystem that centered around the seamsters that produced that product. Um, again, with our farmers and our farmer enrichment program, we developed it in a way that we can provide soil health training equipment and figure out how we expand their 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 regional approach or their businesses from their from their land. Um, and then we also developed a micro granting program within our farmer enrichment program. So we really looked um, at a circular model business. Um, because we didn't want to have the same extractive value that, or an extractive value on our approach of just getting the cotton, just having this product and pushing out in line. We're, at, at every portion of that, we wanted to be able to bring value back to those who were intimately connected to the production of our product. And also just, you know, how it's a circular, it is a circular economy and how each part of the chain is helping one part of another part of the chain. So I love that aspect because it's all a giving back circle. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And you've created a very unique vertically integrated supply chain to produce your garments. Can you, we use words like vertically integrated, but I want to make sure that we understand what that means. So what does that mean to you? Yeah, absolutely. So typically, um, Oftentimes you're, you would think of these things as outsourcing or not having a level of ownership and or control for each portion of that value chain. Whereas to seek to shirt, we have a 
ownership and a level of control of each portion of that value chain. Um, and we look to make sure that our growers, who we are interfacing with, whether that be on the continent or here in the U.S., they have they are also a, a part of that value system. Again, that kind of bring back model. So when we talk about vertically integrated, um, there's no portion of our value chain that we don't completely understand, own, and control. Very good. So can you walk us through the journey that a garment would go through? Oh, <laughs> yes. I actually was just having this conversation today. I often tell people, you know, oftentimes you see, you know, people talk to you about the cotton, the cotton sourcing, but they aren't talking to you about the other stages of the production value chain, which is often encompasses, um, excuse me, it's made up of the textile uh, industry. Mm -hmm. So there's the ginning of the cotton, which just, just cleans that cotton, makes sure that the cotton is graded uh, and is ready for use in multiple multiple product lines. So the cleaning of the cotton is what we would call the ginning stage. And then there's the spinning and the weaving and knitting of, of, of the fabrics or taking that cotton from a a raw commodity stage and transitioning it into a yarn, a yarn of mm -hmm. some type that then can be used in the production of a fabric. So right. that would be the weaving, the knitting stage. And, and then after that stage, um, there's the, the dyeing or the finishing of that material. Oftentimes you're looking at different colors that you want to put onto the garment, uh, into the, the process, so that you have a piece of material that might be, let's say, a deep indigo or potentially a, a golden brown. So that by the time that you get it to your, what we would call the cutting, cut, make, and trim, so it's the CMT phase of, of your garment, you, you have a color, you, are, you know the strength and the durability of that garment because it has been produced to, let's say, the spec that you need for the final product. Um, and for the design community, right, this is an important stage because you're, you're creating something for a, a, a use case, right, a final mm -hmm. product use case. So most brands are doing what we would call line planning. They're, they're taking a use case and they're backing into these final processes. And typically, a, a brand would say to their milling uh, relationship, hey, this is the type of material I need for this type of garment. And then they have a relationship with the company and trim facility that says, I need you to produce this amount of garments um, for this particular product. So there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stages just to produce, let's say, one shirt. Um, right. That you've got to consider the hand and the weight and the feel. So there's the whole textile industry that really makes up the fashion industry uh, that a lot of people um, often don't talk about or don't know. Uh, all the details about, and, and thank you for asking that question around what are the stages of a garment? It's very mm -hmm. important for folks to understand. And it's really interesting because you said, you know, the textile industry isn't really thought about, but, but you know, how often can I say that I think about the agriculture industry when I'm, you know, putting on my, <laughs> putting on whatever cotton shirt that I have, you know, I don't really think too much about it other than when it gets to the, you know, the design stage, I would imagine. So, you know, there's a whole sector of this that we really just don't think about too much. So t-shirts really do get a, a bad rap because there's, 
usually a lot of water that's, you know, used in, you know, making a t-shirt. So with regenerative agriculture, can you tell me a little bit about how, you know, what, what, what makes it different as far as how it's made? Yeah. So I can, I can speak on, you know, our, our product line, you know, we chose to, um, we chose a t-shirt, but then we also chose uh, to be very small batch and intentional around the dyes that were used with our garments. So you can have environmentally friendly dye. Um, at, at, at the end of the day, water usage and textile production, you're not going to get around that. You know, mm -hmm. the, the machines need what they need. Um, but you can work your way back to a portion of that to address, okay, we can be as carbon neutral as we can, we can work to be carbon neutral, cut making trim stage. We can go very small batch in production, meaning we don't want to be mass producing, you know, 30,000 shirts and storing them and, you know, big carbon footprint there, right? And then for us, our, our intentionality was around the actual type of cotton we use, so <laughs> organic cotton. And we know that in organic cotton production, there's things that are taken out of the element that they would normally produce the cotton in that is environmentally harmful, things like synthetic nitrogen. And there's, there's a lot of different chemicals that goes into growing cotton that, you know, helps increase yield, helps the seed be more resilient, but can also be very harmful uh, to the environment. So um, you can source select and be intentional about the raw commodity, and you can be <laughs> intentional about um, how it wakes its way through that ecosystem, as I described, around the dyes that you use, around the production houses, um, to to lower the environmental impact. We also encourage folks to to you know reuse, repurpose the garments. Sometimes you know folks are doing things just to have the brand and the name T-shirt, but you know how can you uh, circulate use that in in your own community so that you know these things aren't just ending up in landfills. Uh, so they're uh, the entire value chain. We look at it as a, I don't like to use the word regenerative. I do like to use the word non-climate harming, right? Like this phrase of like, how are we being more climate beneficial in mm -hmm. our approach to production? You can do that by, re, you know, focusing on regionality, focusing on the, the, the commodity that is done, produced in a way that's not as harmful. So there's, there's different ways that you can look at that when you talk about the entire value chain. And I, there are two things that I wanted to, to hit on, on what you just said, because one of the things that you said is you don't like to use the word regenerative. Tell me a little bit more about that, because, you know, it, you had a little bit of like, it's a cringe word for me, <laughs> but tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, I just think that there's different varying definitions for just the whole why behind what we're doing at Feed the Shirt. It is, it's really holistic community building and empowerment more so than it is I'm focused on regenerative agriculture. Gotcha. No, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking to bring and exchange value in systems uh, where it comes to agriculture and production. We want to, you know, look at ways we can not be as harmful to the planet you know, pick a pick a buzzword phrase. You know, communities of, of practice. Fine, go with that. For us, you know, we are very clear about the things we want to do when it comes to soil. 
in the soil organic matter we're looking to increase and how that is impactful on the climate in general. And we can talk all day about that. Mm-hmm. I try to stay away from um, buzzwords. You know, buzzwords, it, it's an industry leaning terminology. You know, what, what is the science and the data telling us? What are the impact, the livelihoods? What, what, is, what is that level of information telling us? And let's figure out how we address those two. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there'll be a new buzzword in five to 10 years. And sure. For our community, um, for our work, we're, we're concentrating on solutions. Love that. Love that. And also, one of the things that you also highlighted was that you dictate your 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 supply chain, how much you want to you know uh, manufacture. So that's very important as far as uh, with fast fashion and making sure that you know at least on your side of things that your you know your your t shirts aren't aren't ending up in in. Uh, you know, an incinerator or, or in a, you know, or in, in, in landfills or something like that. And of course you can't, you know, you can't say that it will never end up there, but at the same time, if you don't do it as much or produce as much, then there won't be as much to go in there. So. Yeah. You know, um, I'd like to add to that a little bit, you know, I, I have really appreciated this idea of regionality. I've been leaning into communities like Fibershed and other places to, to really address that, you know, um, typically, you know, before mass consumption, uh, mass production, you know, communities were living off of what was produced naturally from the land, creating off of that, um, producing everything they need within, let's say, a two, 300-mile radius. Sorry. Right. And I do think there's a value in understanding um, what the regionality of production could look like. And as you think about this, this desire to bring a product to market, how can you focus on the regionality of production to bring it to market in a way that still kind of honors the systems of where it comes from, of where that fiber or where that cotton is grown, and hopefully how, how folks are using it, right? When I would first selling my product line, I realized that there were the predominance of our customers, they were in the Southeast or New York. And, and as we, you know, looked at where we wanted to have our production center here in the U.S., how could we be, take that vertical model and this vision here? You know, we knew that, you know, outside of North Carolina being who they are in the textile industry, you know, we would be much closer to our customer if we were producing in the Southeast region, we'd be much closer to the farmers who we work with and plan on working with in the Southeast region. So, you know, this idea of even slowing down and looking at production from a regional perspective is, is also important to how you kind of look at your impact uh, mm-hmm. on the environment as a whole and even on community. That's really good. That's really good. Also, just because, you know, I think now there's, we're just in such a stage where everything is mass produced and, you know, that, that person over here who wants to have a t-shirt shop, you know, and maybe just that one, one shop and be able to serve their community. A lot of times people don't even consider it because, you know, 
it's it's all there at you know the big superstore or the store in the mall that's in every mall in the United States of America. So so that's it's really interesting to just think about the like you said the regionality of, of making things within you know certain certain areas you know and that be it. Yes, right. And that's not to say that you couldn't distribute to other places, even in right. boutique factors, right? We see that yeah. done um, very often. I think there's some, some brands that do it really well. <laughs> Sorry, you were about to ask the next No, 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 no. <laughs> so Seed to Shirt helps Black farmers who traditionally and systemically have been excluded from opportunities like access to capital. Um, and I read a quote from you from the Impact magazine, and it states your, that your goal is to positively impact over 350,000 organic cotton farmers in West Africa, Burkina Faso, hope I'm saying that right, with the same programs and services that have already been positively, uh, positively impacted over 3,000 U.S. African-American farmers. So, what did you observe, and I'm going to say transactionally, that inspired this particular work? And especially just, I, I love the fact that it's Africans and African Americans that, you know, it's such a tie. And I just, I just love that you kind of went there as far as <laughs> trying to, you know, be bicontinental. <laughs> Yeah, you know, good, good question. So I, I would say that, you know, my Africana hat and my Africana hat, we just, we're Africans that happen to be somewhere else on the continent, but uh, we are all still African. I say that to say, you know, there were, when we were doing our work in Burkina Faso and, and still are doing our work in Burkina Faso, you know, you could see the natural agriculturalist growers whom we're working with were the natural creators and indigenous practices that are still being employed, you know, and sometimes, you know, you're, you, you would talk to farmers, uh, you know, here in the U.S. and, you know, comes very naturally to them. They're fourth, fifth, fifth generation farmers. You know, we know that, um, you know, between the diaspora, regardless of where we're at on the continents, you know, there are some things that are just really indigenous about the way that we connect with the land <laughs> and so I, I wouldn't necessarily call it transactional i saw some very similar challenges the cooperatives in in, in west africa they were you know most most uh, people in west africa are are in agriculture they are tilling their land even if it's only one to two acres whereas here in the u.s you know we were disinvesting from the from the lands that we, we used to own and or uh, manage and um, bring up in kind of agricultural stewardship. So I would just say I saw a lot of similarity between what was happening in West Africa, what was happening here in the U.S. with our growers and trying to find access to resources, trying to find access to marketplaces and relationships in a way that, you know, valued them. Um, both of those were two needs that I saw, uh, regardless of where I was at and where we were working. And so when I said I, I wanted to have this impact, you know, I knew that sitting down with the cooperative growers that are in the fossil and um, meeting with leadership and bringing forward our pilot program and talking to them about the commitments and the relationships we are working to build, um, 
it was an intentionality around bringing back the stewardship and the relationship between marketplace and the producer that mm-hmm. were both like desire points for, for growers um, in West Africa and here in the U.S. Um, the resources and the partnership with same Burkina Faso, which is a five-year plus partnership, um, there's over 350,000 cotton growers in that region, and around 8,000 of them or so, or a little bit more, are organic, organic growers. Right, mm-hmm. so it was really easy to kind of sit down at around the table, if you will, and talk about, you know, what are the challenges? What are the needs? Here are some similarities between those challenges and needs. And, and here in the U.S., you know, we thought of this this concept of, you know, our growers. Obviously, we we can go over the history. I try, typically dive into those history, historical points in, in conversations, but. I, I like to tell folks just go listen to any podcast I'm on. I talk about the history. I know it very well. My family has lost land. I'm sure that you're you're black here in America. You came from land that you used to own that you no longer own no more, mm-hmm. right? Um, and cotton farmers, black cotton farmers, are less than one percent of the one percent of black growers that are still left here in the U.S. Right? So I, you know, we knew that we wanted to move as a collective with our black growers and and inform this, this, this relationship around cotton that expanded market, you know, increased access, help build resiliency on the landscape. And so being able to mirror and institute some of the same models that we were doing, whether it was in Burkina Faso or, you know, in, in Tanner, Alabama, we were, we were, the foundation was similar. Uh, resources, access, and, and, and soil, soil health in a way that helps the farmer be more resilient on their landscape. So um, I, I guess I wouldn't say it's transactions that I saw that were similar, but, mm-hmm. you know, the needs were similar. You also said that um, the African-Americans here are, are disinvested. And, you know, that's a, a great word because one of the things that I... I even, you know, I'm originally from New York. So thinking about, you know, black farmers, I, I really, I didn't really have a concept of that, but I used to see those historical pictures that would show, <laughs> you know, black people on farms. That was what we would see because that's the work that they did. So when you said disinvested, I just, it really struck me because yes, that 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 was our history or that was, you know, the history of African-Americans here in the United States. And so we are, in many cases, very far from that. And and you also spoke about um, just, what did you say? As far as the, 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 what was the statistic as far as the cotton farmers, the Black cotton farmers um, today? Yeah, you know, well, just, just any of the data will tell us that there's less than 1% of folks Black farmers remaining in the U.S., and I would say there's less than one percent of that one percent that are cotton farmers. Right. Um, so it is, you know, I, I believe it's imperative that you know we look at what we do and how we do it from the landscape of, um, you know, Africans, um, it, we're the original civilization builders, right? We're agriculturalists, we're creators, we have indigenous practices that have been used in, over millennia that have been successful in rooting, rooting in a place. Um, so 
for those who were enslaved and, and, and brought here to the North America to um, really create the America that we have today, um, you know, that came from a great, a great work and a great sacrifice. <laughs> and yes, cotton has this, as I mentioned, at the beginning of our uh, top of our show that, you know, most people are going to have a very visceral reaction to cotton. But quite frankly, um, it's in everything we touch. We know that we can, we can change what that relationship is. And by doing that, perhaps we can change this idea of production in our community, uh, bring back the connection to textile systems in a way that values our communities and rebuilds our communities. Um, because I, I believe we are people, creative people, um, and we need to be on the production of the creation side uh, mm -hmm. in a different way. And, and that's what the shirt is looking to do. So the disinvestment, you know, it's there. The not, you know, 2.6 million acres over, you know, over the years have been you know, taken from Black land ownership. And so that you can't replace that. You know, like they, your grandparents will always tell you, or your mom will always say, they ain't making no more land. Mm -hmm. Right. So once you're disinvested in your land, which is really the resource of the world, mm -hmm. everything below it and everything that you would create from it, um, it's really the land that, that's a target. Um, and so I would say, you know, we're trying to help our, our growers stay on their land, be more resilient in what they're growing. And over time, be a part of the solutions like we always have been. And so being connected to things like climate beneficial verification models, climate smart practices, and new initiatives when it comes to growing cotton, you know, we need to be a part of that. Even if we are, you know, still less than 1% of the growers, it doesn't matter. Our growers need to be a part of it. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what we're most proud of that Seed the Shirt is, you know, being willing to you know, seek those initiatives and bring those resources back to our growers here in the U.S. and in Africa. How, um, how, how do people react to that as far as do they want to be involved in these new practices? You know, I would imagine if a, you know, farmer has done something a particular way for a long time that maybe they are like, no, oh, I don't. I don't know if that'll work. You know, so tell me about some of these these uh, <laughs> these interactions with the farmers. I'm sure you have many stories. Yeah, you know, I'll say this. Um, <laughs> oftentimes, one, you know, before I've when I work with our growers, it was, hey, you know, I want to source some cotton. I'm doing this line and. You know, hey, how much cotton do you need, Tamika? Um, what What are you looking to do? But then, when you take it from an institutional perspective, hey, you've been kind of growing in this way. You know that there was an opportunity to grow in another way, and there there might be a benefit to it from a maybe increased yield, better yield over time, better water retention. You know, most of some of the conversations are hard, but most of the conversations you're having with farmers. Like they know how to grow stuff. And, and oftentimes, they've been instituting these practices that um, in the mainstream or their counterparts um, might find it difficult to transition to, but they've been doing. They've been doing cover cropping. They've been 
you know, hearing a little bit about strip tail and that they were able to invest, they're, they're doing strip tail. They're often not involved in the programs and the certifications and the direct market access. Mm-hmm. So when we sit down and speak about, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different growing practice, yes, but it's also a growing practice that potentially you've already been doing that now we can put some verification and data behind and instead of potentially selling your cotton for, let's say, you know, market value, you might can command a higher price point for that cotton. Mm-hmm. Then the conversation becomes what most people like to have in the space who are farmers, it becomes about business and yield and the potential. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say I've had really good conversations with our growers because at the end of the day, any grower is trying to get more per acre at a higher price per acre, period. That's how you survive. And so if we can bring programs and resources and opportunities that allow them to do that, they're, they're, they have an open ear. Mm-hmm. It might take a bit of a couple of conversations because, you know, we're a value-added company. We're, we're a merchant. They're used to dealing with merchants. That's easy. That's easy. Reason we're a new boutique merchant. Who are our brands? Who are our partners? You know, there's this deeper level of discussion. But I would say, for the most part, it's you know, tell me more, little lady. You know, tell me more, young lady. Let's let's have a conversation about this. And once and, we've and done it, they're they're open to the to well. That's really that's really good. I I I was wondering because. You know, as you said, it is really about business when it comes down to it. That's what farming is all about, you know. But could you, you know, one of the things that, could you explain a little bit about how sometimes farmers miss out on opportunities that are offered by the government that could help them? Um, Because I know that there are some things, and we spoke a little bit before about this, about how there are some things that are just offered to big farmers, you know, with with lots of land. And a lot of times that's not the case in African or African-Americans. And you can tell me if that's the same for both. That that is absolutely true. And I would say, particularly when we're talking about conservation programs, right? Because conservation programs are often looking for the most, how do you say, reductions that they can they can claim or achieve over time. Well, when you reduce systemically reduce um, the average farm size of, of, of black farmers to anywhere between fifty and three hundred and forty-two acres, do you think they're even thought of when it <laughs> comes to these potential programs? Wow. No, because mm-hmm. there's 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 not enough projections of reduction. Do you see the conundrum you're in now? Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that they're not um, considered or these programs aren't there for them. They just wouldn't be necessarily targeted or marketed mm-hmm. it to because right. of their farm size. Mm-hmm. Now, what kind of as I'm a lightly what kind of effed up mess is that right you you're you don't 
intentionally got me in these situations, right? Over time where I'm working with less land. And now because I have less land, I'm not the most opportune person to have in this program. Mm -hmm. No. So that's, that's what I mean by, oh, when you ask that question, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Right. Yeah. But, um, you know, as, as, as the saying goes, you're not on the table, you're on the menu. At the table, you're on the menu, right? So I would say, you know, for organizations who are who uh, want to make sure that our, our Black growers, regardless if it's cotton or another crop, because if you're growing cotton, I guarantee you, you're doing, you're growing other things, whether it be soy, whether it be wheat, whether it be corn. Because if you're if you're a cotton grower, you're probably a, a, what we would call a row crop grower, right? You're growing large types of rotational crops that are for big commodity production, right? Typically, but you might also have some other fields where you're growing food for the community, like greens, and you might be doing cattle on a, on a, on a, on another plot. Like there's a there there's very a large level of diversification. So I would say for folks who are, uh, when you think about Take the Shirt and the Black Collective and all the things that we have under our Farmer Richard program here, program here in the U.S., we are intentional about here are the here are the programs, here are the opportunities, and we're not going to, if, if we're a part of this program, we're going to make sure Black farmers are at the forefront of being included in the programs because when we can't take the same tact of oh, they're small landholders, so it doesn't make sense because it won't be greenhouse gas reduction. That, that's no must, right? We're at the table, we're opening doors, and we'll make sure our growers are a part of these conversations because, quite frankly, they're probably going to be the most nimble and the, the ones who can actually institute them at, these, uh, at the level that need, it needs to be instituted because they're a bit smaller and they can be a little bit more nimble. That was really, <laughs> that was a really good answer. Um, and it's, 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 it's such a complicated issue um, when you're talking about these farms, talking about, you know, America's relationship with black farmers. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you're always just hoping for the best that it's going to that it's going to get better, but you can't just hope. <laughs> and I love the fact that you're, you know, you're an organization that's going headfirst into helping people with trying to come up with solutions and how they can, you know, they can get what's rightfully theirs. Right, or at um, least have the, uh, the ability to rightfully participate, have the same opportunity to participate as any other farmer. Right. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about climate beneficial fibers um, and regenerative. Nope, we're not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> and organic agricultural practices. And we talked about, you know, how they're they're It's different. Um, how difficult is it for farmers to be convinced to change aspects of how their their farming practices are. So and when I'm saying this, not the same question that we talked about just a little while ago. Sure. Talking about 
I know that there are some farmers who have typically farmed or typically done certain crops and, you know, and are thinking about maybe changing over. What does that conversation look like? You know, because again, we did talk about a, a lot of that, you know, being hesitant to do, to do cotton <laughs> farming, but also, you know, because it is an intensive kind of farming too, isn't it? It's, it's very labor intensive as well, probably more so than many others. Absolutely. You know, thank you. And I love the way you've rephrased this question. And to be uh, quite honest, I, I really believe that's why we, uh, we concentrate on the verification model because um, the difficulty in doing new practices really comes down to money, time, and resources, right? So if I want a farmer to, let's say, one of the practices might be, hey, you could really benefit from doing strip till here and maybe having a hedgerow to, to, to help with the wind blockage. What, 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 can you institute that on these 62 acres? So normally they would spend, let's say, three hours planning, four hours planning that 62 acres. And I'm, I'm, these are so super hyperbole, so please don't anyone take me at like these are the actual numbers. But I'm saying it, it comes down to the time and resources. So where are they going to get the seed for the type of hedgerows that we would recommend there? Do, do they have the resources for that seed? Have you, you know, worked with them? and plan with them in enough time so that they can implement that with their, their farm managers or their farm team. So it really comes down to this nuanced balance of how are they going to be resourced to implement this practice? It, they're, they're taking all the risk. If you think about it, you're telling farmers like, hey, you're the ones that's going to help us really address climate change. On top of all the other actors in this scenario, you know, the fo folks who are closest to the soil, are going to be the ones who are closest to us getting at a solution. Okay, so now you want them to reduce their synthetic nitrogen. You want them to implant new, new planting crops. They're, they're either going to take out a loan in order to do these things or, or, or take from earnings that they've already had, maybe saved away for operating expense over a year or two, and put it towards these new practices. So you're asking them to take this risk without any upfront support for that, right? Because then you have to layer in this idea of, hey, you want to be able to validate that these things are happening or these changes are happening in the soil. So it, it really comes down to time, resources, and, and risk. And that's the impact that you're having when you're asking a grower to adopt these new practices or to, to shift these new models. And it's not to say that they don't understand that they're these new practices are going to help them. It's going to help them retaining more water in, in the soil, which means less water, less money for irrigation, right? So they know that there's a benefit over time, but it still costs to do this work. And so we often say, you know, how do you help, how do you help farmers who you know can benefit from what we would call a holistic carbon farm plan? It's a model that comes with climate beneficial verification in a way that's gradual, that you also have elements embedded into your approach with them to help with resources for that. Um, so micro-granting programs, uh, maybe offsetting that with 
hey, maybe we pay a little bit more for the cotton this year because of that price premium will help with the implements they have to do on the land. So um, that's the risk, that's the, the impact. Both want to do it, they just need to be supported and resourced to do it. And we can't continue to ask the farmers to bear the burden of the, the transitions we know need to happen on the ground. Very good. So I wanted to also kind of go back one more time because I I wanted to mention that we talk about the impact of cotton for African Americans and how it could be jarring as far as certain certain things. But one of the other things that we talked about in our pre-interview <laughs> was the fact that this is an African American exclusive um well, I don't want to say exclusive, but it's not an African um, issue. It's an African-American issue as far as the, the whole jarring aspect of it, you know, because they don't have the same relationship as we do to cotton. There's, um, there's more of this is a product and African-Americans who maybe farm or maybe in general, you know, they don't look at cotton the same way as maybe an African would. Can you speak a little bit more about that? If you get what my question is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do believe I, I understand your question. You know, um, we, I would call this in, in, in the other instance, if we weren't talking Africans versus African-Americans, I honestly don't like to have those conversations, but I would say <laughs> to you, it's, it's a trauma relationship that we have with, 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 with cotton. And mm -hmm. I would say our African brothers and sisters on the continent don't have that trauma relationship, right? That's the difference. Um, right. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a true trauma that we have associated with the enslavement of black bodies on this continent and the crops that, you know, those, those black bodies ended up having to grow, right? Whether it be sugar, uh, cotton, rice, you know, you name it, there's a, there's a level, when it comes to agriculture, there's a level of trauma that's a little bit different than what our, than our African brothers and sisters might experience. And this is not to say that places like in the Congo or Ethiopia, where there are, there's land trauma and resource trauma, mm -hmm. you know, cobalt, other things that are associated with when they're dealing right. with the soil. That's a, that's a totally different, right? Yeah. Right. So <laughs> that's another ball game altogether. <laughs> exactly. But just, so I would just say that we're, we're trauma healing when it comes to cotton and our, mm -hmm. our, our brothers and sisters on the continent are not potentially. That's, that's what I was thinking about. Okay. So just to talk a little bit more about seed to shirt, I wanted to kind of give some of the things, some of the accolades that, you know, we read about on the internet. So you're <laughs> in these streets. Um, right. <laughs> That's right. The information from the streets. <laughs> um, your farmer enrichment program works in four countries on two continents and serves 8,400 African farmers. That's 58%, which are women and 1,200 U.S. farmers. Sound right? Yeah, you know, I, I always like to explain those numbers a bit. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, our farmer enrichment program in Africa is predominantly in Burkina Faso. Um, 
we have relationships with other African producing countries in Burkina Faso that predominantly with, within our service model, which is more of our uh, boutique cotton merchant service model out of uh, Senegal, Mali, and Cameroon, where we have those relationships to, to support cotton and the movement of cotton in and out of the country. Uh, with respect to the farmer enrichment program where we provide soil health training tools and resources predominantly Burkina Faso and the remaining area of that work is here in the U.S. and in the U.S. we actually call our farmer enrichment program something else we call it the Black Collective but we really are bringing together a collective of black cotton growers so that they really more readily have access to markets and more readily have access to climate beneficial uh, growing practices on their landscape. Okay. I got a second one. You've partnered sure. with 350,000 yeah. cotton farmers in West Africa and sourced from 12,000 Black, Indigenous, people of color, and organic cotton farmers. That is correct. That is All correct. right. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and we, we say that because, you know, Across Burkina Faso, there are eight cotton-growing regions, and I've, I've mentioned this, you know, lightly in other portions of our conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes, 350,000 plus cotton growers in Burkina Faso, and we work with all of them. We, pre we predominantly focus on the organic cotton growers because in there we can look at some of the transitional things we do around soil health and soil health training. So, yes, that, the number around the organic, it changes every year. <laughs> But those are some of our latest numbers. So are these the tight-knit communities? Just wondering, you know, do they, do they exchange information, you know, see what one is doing maybe better than the other and then share that information? Yeah, well, I can say um, the, the one thing I, I appreciate about working in West Africa is predominantly working with larger cooperatives. So all of, all of the cotton producers in the region are all a part of one large collective. They invest in kind of things like their gin, they invest in, you know, the resources and their trade certification. They, you know, they segment um, the, the cotton production into several different regions. There's technicians for each different region. And these technicians are actually the lead family farmers in that region. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, again, it's just a, a little bit different approach in that um, it is very much a, a collection and collective work, and they do share the information. So what's happening in one region, they share in, in other regions, and they share across the larger cooperative. Now, it's going to vary because when you're in north northeastern, you're going to get a lot more rain, and so they're sharing different things uh, mm -hmm. in that area. Okay. So in addition to sales, $215,000 has been committed to expand outreach to 15,000 plus more diverse farmers. Tell me a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, you know, it's our goal to make sure that we're getting information to, so I'm going to speak in two hats, right? So in general, that's how much we invest in our farmer enrichment program, and we do it on, in these two different regions of the world. Um, and so that outreach is, is going to the outreach to the growers in the eight different regions across the Burkina Faso for cotton production. There's outreach that's happening here in the U.S. that is, again, helping us form our Black Collective, working with growers across Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, 
to address how we come together in a kind of membership approach to pool the cotton that is being grown so that we can get that cotton into the hands of our, our partners who do want to who want to source and use them for different product lines. So it's about the education that we do in the, in these different regions, about tools and resources, and then the soil health testing. So we're often doing like whole farm plans, understanding what's happening with the soil so that there's a real realistic recommendation that we uh, that we provide to the growers that are part of the program. How has Seed to Shirt grown and evolved since 2017 when you were first founded? Yeah, when we were first founded, you know, we mostly focused on, we want to bring this product line, right? But we've evolved to a service, a service-based organization through our cotton emergent services and a program-focused organization through our farmer research program. I would say our program focus uh, in our organization allows us to center more on on the land center more on the vertical production model really hone in on uh, us doing that in the north carolina region and being able to bring boutique manufacturing into the black community in a way that really kind of taps into educational resources taps into fashion and design and so that program focus is really the evolution of the shirt and the evolution of the work that you know i truly believe we we are meant to do and help to help evolve the reimagining of our connection to cotton and technology and apparel. And what do you think in the next five years or so? What tell me where you'd like to see seed to shirts? Yeah, in the next five years I'd like to see seed to shirt um, being a part of a boutique uh, standing production mill so that we can bring forward the cotton fibers that we are resourcing from our black cotton growers here in the U.S. into actual product lines. I'd like to see us expand our boutique um, cotton merchant services to uh, several regions across the U.S. and in Africa. We're working on projects in Kenya, and we have projects in Uganda. So our goal is to 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 see this circular model of production and exchange of value systems uh, happening in 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 our North Carolina production hub and to grow in our African countries across both continents. And, and is there any interest in having more Black men, women, teens, whomever, <laughs> getting interested in agriculture? Is that, you know, is that something that you'd like to see as well? You know, absolutely. In fact, in North Carolina, we are committed to creating this a pipeline of folks who are connected to agriculture and quite frankly textiles. Uh, we've partnered with Gaston College of Textiles to make sure that uh, folks who are interested in design and ag get exposed more to the farm portion of how agriculture is connected to textiles. We participate in annual um, youth exposure events at our farm in North Carolina where where young adults get a chance to tour multiple black farms in the region and be able, of course, to come by our farm to understand, you know, that connection to agriculture again, you know, to be exposed to the things, all the things that come from the land, not just your food, but your clothing. So we are really intentional about the community programs we're a part of, just like the Black Sustainability Network. We support youth being connected again to ag in different ways. 
Um, so absolutely, we do envision that, you know, by us centering more on our land, having kind of the speaking of what we would call our vertical hub out in Carolina, we can actually be, be a model for young adults coming back to agriculture. It's like we came back to agriculture <laughs> it was from the, pro the product of our teaching. Tamika, it's been so great being able to talk to you. Can you just tell everyone if, you know, maybe somebody wants to work with you or maybe wants to get some products, tell, tell them how they can get in contact with you. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, Monica, one, I want to say thank you for Planet A, for one, finding us. It's always grounding to have these conversations. And for people who are looking to interact with Seed to Shirt, source our products, support our programs, you can go to c2shirt.com, that's the number two, shirt.com, and uh, right there on our homepage, it'll give you pathways to source our boutique product line, enter, be involved in sourcing cotton with us, or uh, supporting the programs like our Farmer Rich program and our Black Very good. Okay. Well, we want to thank everyone for joining us for Sustainable Solutions with Planet Eat, and we want to invite everyone to also to subscribe, to like, and to share our content. Thank you again for joining us.